pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 216. Today I'm going to chat with Mikey Hartman from CAA USA. I am your host, Ava Flanell. Mikey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm really jealous. You're in Florida and it's like super nice there. And today high is 50 degrees here in Colorado. You know, Florida weather is awesome. You know, sometimes it's a bit hot, but I don't think there's many places that beat it. And we have a great governor too. So we're we're two Uh, for two. I know. Right. So (laughs) I was actually just telling my friend, I'm like, I really do need to figure out how I can have a winter house, like in Florida or Arizona, because I just, I hate the cold. It's, and it's not even like Colorado really has that much snow, like Colorado Springs. But it's just the cold that just, it just gets me. Plus, I got like a 50-pound white pumpkin last weekend. I went to a pumpkin farm. And oh, I'm kind of cool. concerned about my pumpkin outside. I don't know, like, I know they obviously grow outside, but I'm like, at what temperature do they start to, like, rot? <laughs> to make you feel better, when you live in Florida, you actually want to buy a vacation home where, where there's snow. So my kids are, are 14 and 10, and they never saw snow in their lives because in Israel, we don't have snow. And in Florida, we don't have snow. So uh, we actually took them uh, pre-COVID to, to New York. And in the winter, just they could see snow in a little cabin there that we rented out for a week. So when you want to come here, know that there's people here that want to go where you are. Maybe we could do like a home swap. Sure, sure. I'm not, they do that stuff. Sure. <laughs> A good idea. And I understand you're re- renovating and we're renovating. So we'll, you know, at least get there when, uh, when the houses are good. Cause right now yeah, exactly. it's a nightmare. It'll be like yeah. a brand new house basically. And yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a day. All right. Mike, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I actually last, I think it was last week. I talked about your new design coming out and then I touched base with one of your employees there. And I was just like, Hey, it'd actually be really cool to get you on and to hear it from you. But before we get into all of that, I'm really interested to hear about like your background and, you know, everything that happened that led up to you, uh, getting, uh, started with CAA. So give me a little bit about your background. From my understanding, you're actually from the U S but when you turned 18, you actually moved to Israel, right. To join the Israeli defense forces. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I don't know how interesting my story is, but uh, I was born actually in Memphis, moved to LA, always had a, a, some sort of BB gun in my hand ever since I was little. I didn't know I would end up being the shooting champion of Israel, but I definitely uh, loved, uh, loved shooting, but I didn't know much about it. And I always, when I was in high school, you know, I, I'm Jewish, so I grew up in a Jewish home. I would always have this dream that I'm a a sniper on the Warsaw ghetto during the Holocaust and shooting at Nazis and how many Nazis will I kill before they kill me kind of thing. Yeah. And it was like a re- reoccurring dream. So the first word I learned in Hebrew was uh, Tzalaf, which means sniper. And my dream was to be a, a, a sniper in the Israeli army, which ended up, that's what ended up happening. And I didn't know I'd stay in for 22 years and become a lieutenant colonel, but I definitely, that was my, that was my dream. You know, uh, if I can help people get home safely to their families, and uh, you know, do something, leave, leave some sort of stamp on the world that I, I made it a little, little bit better by, by helping the soldiers. So in Israel, everyone's kind of much against us. We really don't have any friends other than the USA. Um, and now it's not as fun as it was when, when Trump was president, but um, 
uh, we definitely need the USA guys and uh, and your backing, but we're surrounded by people that don't want us there. Mm-hmm. So you're always in a, a, a constant fighting situation. So it was definitely a, a very interesting 22 years in the IDF. Oh, I can only imagine. So I actually, I'm Jewish and I went to Israel and I noticed that there's soldiers everywhere. And at one point, the group that I was in, we actually had to move because there was bombing going on nearby. And it's crazy to think that this is just something that is almost like everyday life for Israelis. It's almost insane because yeah. people don't understand that this country called Israel, you almost impossible to find it on a map because it's so minute. It's geographically the size of New Jersey. You know, yeah. we're in Florida. We're can't, I don't even know how many times bigger than we are of all Israel. But from west to east, because it's like a rectangle, there's sometimes like 12, 15 minutes and you're at the border already. And so you're basically surrounded by people that don't want you there and you don't have space to, to deal with them. So you're fighting all the time. I remember when we lived in a place called Gadara, which is the southern part of Israel, it's kind of between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but it's farther south. And all the houses that you probably know, they have bomb shelters inside. Mm-hmm. So every home that's built in Israel has to have a bomb shelter by default, by definition. And then when the guys, the terrorists, the Hamas guys send uh, bombs over from Gaza, there's a siren that goes off. And the farther you are from Gaza, the more seconds you have to get your kids into the bomb shelter. So it can vary from either 15 seconds up to around 45 seconds to a minute, depending on the distance you live from there. And then you have to get your kids you know, we lived in a small two-story home and you have to pull the kids out of the cribs and, and run down the stairs and, and, and close yourself up in this little bomb shelter in the house. And my daughter would say to me, you know, daddy, why do they want to kill us? Why they, and she's like, you know, seven, eight back then. And, and she had such trauma from that, that during her adolescence, she, you know, she's 14 now, but she would not want to be upstairs if we were not upstairs in Israel. We had to be on the same floor because this leaves some like psychological damage. And, and, and you have to understand, if you read a, a kindergarten book in the territories in, in Gaza, you're taught from age one as a Palestinian not to be a doctor or a lawyer. You're taught to be a martyr. You're taught to grow up and, if possible, kill yourself with and take as many Jews as possible. That is your goal in life because then there's streets named after you and Iran pays your family money for the next two, three generations. And, you know, you're a hero. So that's how they're taught. If you see the way they're dressed up on their Halloweens, they're all, all the kids are in suicide bomber vests, every single one of them. So it's a, it's a crazy world to live in, but it's also beautiful there. And a crazy thing that people don't understand in the army, in Israel army, you have to go in if you, it's a mandatory draft. So a guy at 18 goes in for three years, a girl at 18 goes in for two years, but on the weekends you go home. It's not like here in America, you guys go to Iraq, Afghanistan, and you come home every six months or whatever. There you come home every week or two. So you see your family on the weekends, and then you go back to, to the army. That's the way it's because your base is normally a half hour or 40 minutes from your, your home because the, the country is so small. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's a definitely different environment than here. But we are what we call great friends. I think the Israeli military and the American military, I, I don't think there's a better relationship anywhere between any two militaries in the world than, than that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Israel definitely is like a beautiful country. It's just amazing. I actually, so I have a kind of a funny story, but when I was in Israel, I ended up getting sick. And they, what I didn't realize is the amount of people there that speak Russian. 
and they don't speak yeah. English. And that's like the last thing I would have thought. I don't, like, I don't know why. I was really surprised to see how many people spoke Russian. And uh, so I had a translator basically telling them my symptoms, what medication I was currently taking. And then they prescribed me like, I don't know, they gave me like two different pills in the middle of the night. So earlier that day, we went to Mount Masada. And I don't know if maybe I was hallucinating or dreaming, but I was sleeping on a bunk bed. I fell off the bunk bed in the middle of the night. I ended up breaking my arm. Oh my God. And I had a concussion. (laughs) Jesus. craziness! And it's funny because my mom, my sister and I, we both went to Israel. My mom was scared to let us go. And really, I mean, out of everything that could have happened, mine was self-inflicted. But we were in some little town and they didn't have the resources to put a cast on my arm. So we had to drive like two hours to a bigger city. And even there in the hospital, everyone spoke Russian. And even the cast that I did get on, it looked like just some foreign. It's weird because you would think they'd have kind of the same technology. But even the cast that was on my arm, it just looked like it was like some kid put it on. And then they almost wouldn't let me get back on the plane to go home because the cast was so new that when you, you know, obviously when you're in the air and everything yep. expands, so they didn't want my arm to expand. It was like a, a bit of a nightmare, but it was definitely something that I'll always remember. And to this day, I have like an indentation in my leg. So it looks like I have like a forever cankle and that's where they, you know, wherever I severed a nerve. And so there's parts of my foot that I can't feel. <laughs> Oh my God, that's not a great story about Israel. I was waiting to hear a good story about Israel. That's insane. Yeah. By the way, you know, medicine in Israel is actually, I think, one of their strengths. They got a whole bunch of Nobel Prizes on on medicine, but the doctors there are normally, normally, I guess there's some, there's some, uh, uh, some things that are different than that, but they're actually very good at that. And because it's like kind of public healthcare, uh, you're, it's not as crazy expensive, but there's doctors there that are like, that are great. Your story, if you're in Masada, that's very south. So as we said, we're a rectangle. So you are by the Dead Sea. That's where Masada is. Uh-huh. So that, that you would have to drive probably two hours to get to either Beersheba or Eilat. So someone could uh, take care of you. But Russians have there's there's major cities in Israel that are all Russian. You know, they live in they live in groups. So uh, and this is was because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia in the old Soviet Union, and an, an immense amount of 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 the percentage of the Russian Jews left Russia to to Israel. And an, and a funny story about what you and I do, eighty five percent of all snipers and sharpshooters in the IDF are all Russian born or Russian uh, grandparents, but they're all Russians. Alex, Evgeny, Boris. You go to any sharpshooter and sniper in Israel, you ask him, is your name Evgeny, Alex, or Boris? 80% of the time, you'll be right. Wow. They have, because they, they were taught, you know, to shoot with an AK-47 in the high school. You know, They were taught from parents that were in the military. It's like, they want to be, I developed a, a job called a sharpshooter in the IDF in, in 1993. And it was like between a regular grunt guy and a sniper. We built like a, a second stage. I think you guys call it a designated marksman. We call it a sharpshooter. In any case, I can't even tell you. I, I had to try to, we had to bring in instructors that spoke Russian because so many of the, of the uh, guys that came to our sniper school were, were Russian based. It was insane. So interesting, different stories about Russians in Israel. Yeah, but that's, kind of, that's something that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, I never knew that. I don't know. I just, I found it kind of odd. I guess it was the last thing that I would have thought of is that there's just such a large Russian population. 
it, as well as as well as Ethiopian. So you know, uh, almost every Jew that lived in a lot of these places leaves because of the anti-Semitism, and their only real home is Israel. Other than America, you know, it's not very easy to be Jewish anywhere. And now we have some people in our government that aren't very happy with Jews either. But you know, the 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 whole thing is there's very few people that you can walk around. There's stories even in New York though that that Jews are walking around and someone sucker punches them or stuff like that. So anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise. Yeah. But what the only real true place to be is in Israel with a gun or here in America with a gun. You gotta, you need yeah. to be able to protect yourself. That's for damn oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's go back to when you started a training shooting school for soldiers. Yep. What got mm-hmm. you started into that? Well, when I joined the IDF, it was in 88. So I'm an, I'm an old man. And um, I was in what we call the Givati Brigade. Those are the Purple Berets. Those are in, in the South as well, by the way. Uh, by the Egyptian border, and when my my first grouping with the Galil, which was our which was our you know given weapon, that's what they would give to us. Mm-hmm. I had a very good grouping. I think it was like, if I remember correctly, maybe two centimeters, maybe a uh, little less than an inch. And back then in '88, because it was pre-Russian immigrants, because the Russians now have all the records in shooting, it was like extraordinary. So they brought a general to watch me shoot. Which was something that you know, because Jews Jews are very not athletic, right? <laughs> we weren't very good at things that are not mine related, and uh, they sent me to sniper school after about maybe a month and a half in boot camp, and I came back to be a sniper in my in my platoon in my company, and one of the times that we were in Lebanon doing an ambush, before the ambush you do um, how do I say it in English? You do like preparations for the ambush. So we all zero the guns. You get your gear and you know get your gear ready. Make sure you got what you need to take out with you to the ambush. So after I zeroed in my my sniper rifle was an M14. That's that's what we had back in 1988, and um, it was a semi-automatic. Wasn't even uh, you know it's not a one shot. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I ended up zeroing my, my weapon. We didn't even have a night scope on it. So I had to take another gun with a night scope because we didn't have a, a night adapter to put on the M14. And uh, crazy how the world has changed in so many years. But after I finished zeroing the gun, my, my sniper rifle, my friends in my platoon were having trouble zeroing their, their Galil. So I went down the shooting line, just giving them my thoughts or what I thought was logical of how to... In, in, improve their shooting so they could do a better grouping so they could zero better. Mm-hmm. And my my platoon commander saw that, you know, I was a young kid. I must have been what eight months in the army, nine months in the army, maybe 10. I knew nothing of nothing basically other than you know how to shoot. So um then maybe four, five, six months later, my battalion commander, who's a lieutenant colonel, calls me and he says, they say you have a gift that you can make people shoot better. I said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I don't know if I have a gift. But And he said, do you think you can develop that in our unit, for this one infantry unit called Givati, which is one of the five infantry units of Israel? Um, I said, you know, I can try. You know, I went to NCO school, became an NCO guy, became a sergeant, then became a first sergeant. And then I started writing. I would write scenarios like, uh, you know, shoot at 25 yards in a standing position, uh, 12 rounds in three seconds, whatever it is, you need to hit this kind of score. I would build like rows of lines of how I think we should build soldiers. How do you take them from A to Z? Because in Israel, we don't, we don't have hunting. We don't have sports shooting. No one owns a gun in Israel. You only get it issued when you join the army. You don't own a gun at home. It, you can't go into a gun store in Israel and buy an AR or an AK. It doesn't exist. 
almost very little people have handguns, very little. So the only people that have weapons are, are soldiers, right? So the first time a guy shoots a gun is in his boot camp. He's never shot a gun in his life. So um, I, in my life, have never gone hunting. I've had to shoot two-legged people. I've never shot a four-legged thing in my life. <laughs> so um, I started building this. And we started developing it in my unit, in the Gibati Brigade. And then we won a whole bunch of shooting competitions. And then the other, the other infantry units spoke to the, the general of the armed forces and said that we, should, we need to move Mikey out of that unit and put him in charge of all of us. So in 93, after five, six years in Givati, they moved me to, uh, I, be, I went to officer school. I became a second lieutenant then, you know, at, until I got to a lieutenant colonel. And I started the school in 1993. And basically I tried, everyone in the Israeli army was doing something different. Like maybe the army and the Marines and the Navy do things differently here in America. In Israel, every infantry unit would shoot its own doctorate back then in 93. And it, it, went, it went down from sergeant to sergeant to sergeant to sergeant. It was like a, a, a walking Bible, you know, and it would just be passed down by generation to generation. So everyone had their own way of doing things. And there wasn't unity. There wasn't a doctrine of, of any way that everyone would do. We were like the best at improvising. You know, everyone would just shoot from their hip in Israel, literally. And um, so I started writing. And then I would go to these units, these other units, and say, hey, guys, try this. And fortunately for me, it, it worked. And then we started getting better and better and better and better. And I ended up writing over 10,000 uh, shooting uh, schedules for the artillery, for engineering, special forces, uh, Navy, whatever, whoever. And then um, I became very good at that. That was my, my gift. I would go to a sleep with a pen and paper next to me. And I'd come up with an idea of a shooting position or how to do an ambush or you know anything like that. And I would write it down. And the next day was law because I didn't have any bureaucratic red tape that they do here and um we're always in battle so we will always be learning from things that are happening and we could adapt our doctrine because of the, what's what we're learning so that was like a daily thing and normally in the army you do a job for two years and then you go on to another job in the israeli army as, a, as an officer somewhere else and that's the way you continue your army service i wasn't talented enough to do anything else so i stayed basically in my same chair give or take for 17 years there was a break that I was in charge of ambushes in lebanon for a year but mostly you know that was my thing you know to develop you know machine guns and what sites and building you know i brought in an acog from uh, trijicon and i built a different reticle and i built all those zeroing targets for israel and you know even the way we check a gun is different than the way americans do it so it was my thing that's what i knew how to do and i thought that's why god put me on this earth I wasn't married. I was single my entire military. I met my wife when I was a lieutenant colonel already. So um, it was, uh, I always felt that, you know, if I can save one life with what I do, then that, that would be awesome. And, and I even had the opportunity to train thousands of American military. They would come to our base before they go to Iraq or Afghanistan in this like program called Lessons Learned. And we would train them uh, because we were better than you guys originally on CQB because you guys had most of your knowledge from Vietnam, which was more of an open terrain or jungle warfare, but not street to street, house to house. So when, before you guys went into Iraq, we had that. That was our knowledge of, you know, how do you clean a street? How do you clean a room? How many people need to go in? Where are the guns aimed? Uh, what kind of equipment do you have to have on? So this is stuff that we knew very well, unfortunately, because of how we have to fight. 
And that knowledge was given over to the U.S. military. And when you guys do something, you guys do it better than we do anyway. And uh, so we would do a lot of lessons learned back and forth and learning from each other. So I trained probably probably three to 4,000 American military guys. Wow, that's incredible. One thing that you brought up is that civilians don't own guns. And I kind of find that a little odd. Like, I wonder if you know, with bombing, I mean, basically just being right outside your backyard, it almost makes sense that civilians should be armed. Well, you have to understand, firstly, everyone in the Israeli army is a soldier, right? So after you do your first three years, you then do reserves until you're 45. So at least one month a year, every single person in Israel does a month of reserve, sometimes even more a year. And during that time, he's also armed. And sometimes where he lives, they tell him just keep the gun if he's like in the territory or something like that. You, just, you stay with your gun the whole time, even when you're not in reserves. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, another thing that a lot of people don't know is handguns. We have almost zero handguns in the IDF. You know, everyone's talking about you guys carry with around in the chamber, don't carry. And then they start talking about all this stuff about Israel. No one has handguns in the Israeli army. There may be two units in the entire Israeli military that have handguns. We don't have a secondary. We don't have a backup. So uh, more people have shot themselves in the leg with handguns than they have killed terrorists with handguns in the Israeli army. So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions of the way people see Israel and the way we are and what we actually are. So that's interesting. I mean, that makes sense of such a large population of Israel is, you know, military. Yeah, everybody, you know, there's and, and, and it's like craziness. Right. So let's say even the the uh, in the south of Israel, where you were not too far from from Masada, there's a Arab community, a Bedouin community. And these Bedouin guys, they do the army and they're all from the same family. So they have their own brigade that their commander can be their uncle or their cousin. You know, so, uh, you know, it's like family. You're always your father's a, a, a soldier, your grandfather's a soldier, your brother's a soldier, your sister's a soldier, and your mom was a soldier, right? So it's a totally different mindset. But we have uh, our border police are in, on, in all areas that there's friction with the, with the Arab population that is anti-Israel. So, you know, it's amazing that in our government in Israel, we have 120 seats. I don't know, 13 of them are Arab. So people say we're apartheid. <laughs> Are we, are we apartheid if there's 13 Arabs in our, in our government that want to kill us, by the way? But we're a democracy, so and we're the only democracy there in the Middle East. But uh, it's it's everywhere there's friction, you'll have border police. Mm-hmm. So it's not like um, it's a free fall on the streets. You know, there are situations that, you know, when you go into a mall in Israel, uh, a movie theater, you're going to be checked. You're going to be checked if you have a weapon on. Now, you are able to carry if you have a license. But this, you're going through a metal detector, going into a, into a mall in Israel. You know, your, your car is going to be checked when you're going into an underground parking lot. That's the way everything is in Israel. And, and you accept it as being living there. You, you understand that's the rule. So it, you just adapt. And then here in America, it's, you know, totally different thing. You know, everything is so different here. You know, the space you guys have grass. <laughs> There's no grass in Israel. You know, just it's all synthetic and stuff. You don't see people having a, an acre home in Israel. When I when I when I moved here to South Florida, I sold my house in Israel, and for the exact same amount of money that I sold my house in Israel, I bought a house here in South Florida. But the size of the house was 16 times the size than it is in Israel. So they have these like satellite pictures that you can see your home. And I have like a, a, an acre of land, which is not a big deal, but in, in Israel it is. And I would send a picture of my home to my friends in Israel, telling them this is where I'm going to live. 
And they said, bullshit, you're not going to live there. I said, swear to God, that's my house. No, bullshit, you're lying. That's Trump's house. I said, no, that's, that's my house. That's not Trump's house. You know, the whole concept of, of land is totally, that's probably why we don't have any hunting. You know, there's just no space for that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Okay. okay, so changing it up a little bit. So then when you got out of the military, that's when you started CAA, right? No. No, after, after the military, I, I retired in 2010 as a, a lieutenant colonel after 22 years. And I went to a company um, that we started to develop optics. I was into optics first. So I did some optics for, for in a joint venture with Beretta from Italy. I was there many, many, many times. It was for a tender in India. Mm-hmm. Um, met some great people there in Beretta, uh, especially in Steiner. Uh, um, one of my mentors is a guy named Robert Eckhart, great, great guy. And then CA represented me selling my sites in the civilian market here in America. And that was, I knew CA through the IDF because, you know, we had some of their stuff, but CA was, was around uh, much before I took over. So I don't know how many years they've been around in, in Israel. I know, so I ran, I ran CA Israel for around three years and they were having many problems with CA USA, CA America with the ability to sell. So the, com- the company here was running at a loss for probably about six, seven years. And uh, the, the partners asked me, do I think I can, I can help? And I said, I can, I can try. I wasn't too confident. And when I first came out here about a little less than five years ago, I would tell people that I'm from CA. And I would, there, sometimes I got physically kicked out of stores. Yeah. That the reputation was so negative. They were dealing with, CA originally started dealing with accessories. Mm-hmm. Before Megpool, by the way, I remember when Megpool was a two-man company. I had a show that I gave a symposium once for, uh, in any case, um, they were selling gun furniture, like the, the stocks, the rails, the grips. That's what CA did for many, many, many years. And CA America would take the stuff from CA Israel and sell it here in the, in the civilian market. And unfortunately, they didn't do a, a great job at that. And they didn't do very well and it was losing money. And uh, then they developed the Roni before my time. And that didn't do well in America. It wasn't accepted here. And uh, fortunately, when I got here, I got lucky. And we made some viral content. So we did probably about 250 million views on, on Facebook, on different videos that either we did or, or friends of ours did. And somehow we started becoming a known name. And uh, around three years ago, we started developing the MCK, the microconversion kit. And we actually make it here in Florida. We split from Israel. And this took off. And when initially a conversion kit was looked at as a crutch or as, you know, go practice at the range with your handgun, what do you need help for? And it was a very, very strong uphill battle. Eventually, uh, it took, it went crazy, went viral. And, you know, it, you know we sold a, a tremendous, tremendous amount of these conversion kits. And I think the fact that it's made in the USA, which is our tagline, MCK made in the USA has been a big deal. And that we went away, not just from Glocks, even though we have a tremendous amount of Glocks, we went to the Zigzauer world and the Smith and Wesson world, you know, the SD9s and the Shield and the MMPs for us are, are great sellers. We went to the Taurus, uh, CZ, uh, uh, Springfield. So we went into different areas and every one of the ones we've made has been pretty much a home run. We've been very, very, very fortunate. And we have a great people out there that that support us and and buy our products. And um, we've had a great run and we're just riding the wave as long as we can. Yeah. 
for listeners who aren't familiar with the microconversion kits, can you just explain what they are? Sure, sure. Um, almost everyone's seen them on social media. Uh, I don't think anyone's not seen them. They don't know what it is. They don't know who CA is. But the, so the, these conversion kits are basically you take your handgun. It can be, a, as we said, we, we mentioned the companies. We have about 125 different handguns can fit into our little compartment, our little conversion kit. No tools are needed. You just slide your handgun in. It takes about two seconds. And now because I have more points of contact, I have four points of contact instead of just holding a handgun with my with my hands and 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 wrists. The accuracy is greatly improved. So now the stability when I'm firing is a totally different ball game. You can shoot probably three times your range, whatever your range is, when it's in a conversion kit. Now I can add optics, I can add lasers, I got knives and bayonets, uh, bipods, you know, you can glass breakers, you can do so many, so many, a lot of fun add-ons we put onto this. And what, what we've seen in, firstly, we stand on three legs. We have the law enforcement, home defense, and recreational shooter. And in all three of these, we have seen a great, great, great uh, growth. And it makes any shooter a better shooter. So you can teach your kids how to shoot with it. You can leave it by your wife when you're on business in her, in, her, in her table by the bed, or you can go to the range with it and everyone wants something cool that the other guy doesn't have. And, uh, and we're just having fun with it. You know, we have it in the USA flag and we the people and we, we seracote them and we hide your dip them. And it's just been, we've been blown away, just blown away. And every major distributor in America carries our product. And it just, I think what people love about it, it's just simple and makes them better. And it's very cost effective when you're going sub $300 and people feel they're going to be spending $500 on your product. It's a good feeling buy, especially when you have it in your hands. There are still non-believers out there, right? There are still people in your audience that are against the conversion kit, but that community has lessened and shrink, shrunk over, over the years. Where do we do our best? Like in an NRA show and a retail show when someone can actually hold it, we molded my hand. And we made the front kind of grip that we have here on the MCK. And it's a very, very unique kind of look. It's not a tactical look. It's not a sexy kind of look, but it just perfectly fits into your hand. Kind of looks like a half a potato, someone once called it. And everybody who has ever held one wants one. And uh, we did our Gen 1. A year later, we came out with a Gen 2. And in this SHOT Show, we're coming out with our Gen 3, which is going to be uh, another jump for us. So again. Loving the people that that support us and and even those that don't, and we feel very fortunate that we're able to give jobs to people here in South uh, South Florida, and it's just been crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Your experience with IWI goes way back. Yes, ma'am. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> IWI was a home away from home for me. Uh, being in charge of shooting for the Israeli military, uh, the owner Sammy Katsa, but his CEO Uri Amit is he's still my best friend now, even though he's retired. Uh, I don't have anyone closer in my life than him. And he ran C he ran IWI for 11 years. So IWI used to be called IMI. The W was switched over, turned over. And it was a government-owned company. And I don't even know how many years, but if I had to guess, God, I don't even know. 10, 15 years, probably closer to 15 years ago, um, someone bought it and they... Um, and went from publicly owned to privately owned. And then it became IWI. And one of the guns that IWI made was the Tavor. So it was my job to implement the Tavor into the IDF. 
with many challenges because a bullpup is a different type of gun and especially when you're used to the ARs, right? When you're used to a magazine being in the front or with a Galil or with an AK, your, your memory muscles are thinking that the, 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 the magazine is more forward than it is obviously in the bullpup. And it was not an easy thing. So real quick on the IWI, which was a big part of my life, I had to make a call on the IDF. It was the first time it was ever done. When we started implementing the Tavor into the Israeli army, we normally do it in Israel, either by brigade or battalion. So the entire battalion, the entire brigade gets this new optic, this new ammo, this new gun, and we train them and, and we do that. But because I was so fearful of, you know, because we're in battle every day, you don't, we don't have time. Yeah. I made a call that the Tavor will only go into the IDF through boot camp. What does that mean? The only soldier who will ever see a Tavor is a soldier who starts with it, meaning he would, I do not have to retrain him. I do not have to erase all the AR, M4 stuff out of his brain. I just need to implement the Tavor doctrine into his brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the way you do Krav Maga, the way you go, you know, you fight with a weapon is totally different with a Tavor than it is with an M4. There's just no barrel, right? So the, the, whole, the whole concept is different. Um, but so we only a new soldier at 18 would get a Tavor, and then slowly but surely, I would fill in the unit because we all serve for three years. So it would take three years in order to fill up the entire unit with Tavors. And then when they go to reserves, they go to reserves with their Tavor. That was the objective. Uh, and this was very difficult because you would have, let's say you have five infantry units in Israel and they all go to NCO school together. On a firing line, you had guys that had an M4 and a Tavor simultaneously shooting and they each ch- uh, check a weapon differently. Yeah. Um, so... There was a lot of difficulties in this, but that's how it was done. And the battalion commanders and the brigade commanders would call me, Mikey, let's train the, the old guys. Because the, the older you are in the army, out of those three years, you're considered, we say in Hebrew, pazam. You're considered uh, cooler, cooler because you're closer to getting out. So the new guys were getting, the young guys were getting the new gun, while the old guys were with the old gun, which was a very big problem with the a, a Jewish ego, Israeli yeah. ego. Yeah. So the, and, but th- there was no other choice. And I was vehemently against putting the Tavor into the reserves because those guys 20 years have been with a Galil with an M4 and the transition from Galil to M4, which was also my responsibility back when I started way before the Tavor was much easier of a transition to go from a Galil to to an M4 than to go firstly with M16 and then the M4 to go from an M4 to a Tavor, which is a totally different world than bullpup. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying we should never, ever train the reserves on a Tavor because it, we don't have the time to train them. They give you two or three days. You can't erase 20 years. Yeah. So while I was commander of, of this, uh, of the shooting of Israel, they kept, they kept it the way I wanted to be. But right when I retired, <laughs> they said, screw that. We're going to put the Tavors into reserves, but who's going to train the reserves. There's only one guy. We'll call him Mikey. So after I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel, they called me in to teach reserves to, on the Tavor, which I was adamantly against, but I'm a soldier, so you got to salute and do your best anyway. So it was it was very ironic that I'm the guy that they called back to teach the reserves to do the to, to, to understand the Tavor when I was so against doing it when I was under you know under contract basically. Yeah, I mean, but that makes perfect sense. Like yeah. you're you know you're thinking it does make sense, so I could completely understand that. And also now that you're saying that 
you know, like when, let's say you train the, the military before they go to Afghanistan, because now they're in close quarter combats, it makes sense that bullpups would be so popular in Israel because of that type of war that they're in. Yeah, what you basically get with a bullpup is a shorter gun without losing accuracy. That's, that's everything in an eggshell. And in the Israeli military, three infantry units still have Tavor, and two of them still have the M4. The entire Israeli military is not on the Tavor. It's, it's uh, I don't even think it's half, probably less than half. But um, there's some reasons for that with tanks and artillery and reserve units. And so it wasn't easy for some people, the Tavor. We say Merkaz COVID, the, the, the center of grab the weight, I don't know how to say that in English, but the, the, the middle of the weight of the gun, it's no longer in the middle. It's mm-hmm. way in the back. It's rear heavy. Yeah. So the a bullpup is, is your left hand, your weak hand means nothing when shooting a Tavor. Mm-hmm. It has no importance. You can physically, God forbid, cut off your arm or put it in your pocket and shoot almost the same way with a Tavor with one hand because your shoulder becomes your right hand. And your right hand on the pistol grip becomes your left hand. Those are that's where you're holding all the weight between your shoulder and your right hand, because all the weight's in the back. Yeah. Your left hand becomes almost in, in, irrelevant. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I didn't think about that. Huh. Okay. Well, if you guys want to check out uh, any IWI products, head on over to IWI.us. Use the code GunFunny15. That gets you fifteen percent off all accessories. I so still love the Tavor. I got to tell you, I it. There was a lot of I got a lot of kickback on the Tavor because I have a lot of stories that I probably shouldn't tell on how the Tavor was put into the IDF, but maybe for another day. There were people that didn't like the Tavor. You know, you have to understand people were very happy with the M4. M4 saved many, many lives in Israel. Many, many, many lives. Um, you know, I was with it for I can't even tell you how many years. It was, you know, I love the M4. And they actually took a picture of me and, and they put me on the cover of Soldier of Fortune. I was the only Israeli Jew they ever put on cover of Soldier of Fortune, and I had a Tavor. I was the first officer in Israel, the first soldier in Israel that had a Tavor. And I learned it in, in depth, you know, and there are many, many, many advantages to the to the Tavor, but I can totally understand people that are anti-bullpup. What, to, what IWI has done because of that, they have multiple options. So IWI is not just a Tavor company, they have the Galero, the Ace, they have different types of, of guns that they sell that are not bullpup, specifically for people that are against bullpup. Yeah. So uh, marketing-wise, at least, they have many options. And even though the Tavor, I think, was the gun of the year by the NRA when they first brought it out, when Michael built IWI USA here, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. They, they, did, they did a great job. Yeah, they absolutely did. In fact, I just got a Galil, the Ace Pistol 7.62 by 39 a few weeks ago. I haven't wow. had to shoot it, you know, because my house, you know, <laughs> but super excited to shoot it. And it just feels really great in my hands. But I think IWI makes some excellent products. The Galil was was my first um, issued uh, firearm. So I think I was with the with the Gilded probably six years. And our tank guys and our artillery guys stayed with them for even when we went to the M4s and infantry, the uh, tank, tank and artillery guys stayed with the Galil because they go into their tank or their uh, and they would just throw the gun inside there. And the Galil was such a workhorse, you know, yeah. mud because the Galil basically was a copy of the AK-47 just with improvements. Right. Yeah. So it works in mud. It was a it was a workhorse, but it was heavy as shit. Yeah. The magazines were incredibly heavy. 
The fact that they carry five more rounds, it's bullshit, 35. We don't carry 30 rounds in our magazines in Israel. We're either 28 or 29. We're, we're always worried that the first round is going to be a stoppage and the spring is not. You'll never see a soldier in Israel with 30 rounds in an AR magazine. But in any case, the Galil was incredibly heavy. And the major problem with it was that the rear sight was on the dust cover because they wanted to create larger space between the front sight and the rear sight, because in the AK, as you know, it's in the middle of the gun, the rear sight. So that the sight distance increases accuracy. The farther they are apart, you know, to a limit, the more accurate the, the weapon's going to be. Your straight line is straighter, we'll call it. So when that, originally in 88, before the A's, but when the old Galils, even before there was an IWI, this was all IMI, this is Israeli-owned, uh, the government-owned, the dust cover, I think it's called in, in English, would move. It would rotate left and right. And the, and the rear sight was on this dust cover. So it, would, it could go to the right and go to the left. So I can't even tell you what that would do to zeroing, right? So it was just a, a frigging nightmare. We would teach, move, move the dust cover to the right before you zero. So at least I have one uh, consistent place that I can now try to zero my gun. It was like insane, right? So uh, I cannot tell you how much we moved from 88 to 2010 in, in shooting because we just we just didn't have the right equipment, you know? Right. We had a, a night scope called Varo. It was, uh, I don't even know what company. It was 1.7 kilo of shit. Now it says that you can shoot to 800 meters with the, with the crap. I would put it on my M long M16 because as a sniper, we had an M14, but we couldn't put night vision on that. So we had to carry two guns. And my issue gun is a Galil. So now I got three guns, right? I got my Galil gun to, for the regular CQB stuff. I got my M14 as a sniper rifle with a night with a day scope called a Nimrod. It was like magnified by six. And, and I had a, M a M16 long with this Varo sitting on the top of the carrying handle. And it was, um, you know, three. it's probably like five pounds. And they said you can shoot from 800 meters and you can put on an RPG and shoot with an RPG with it. And it had all these crazy lines inside of the, the scope, like you're supposed to range estimate crap and stuff like that. I swear to God, you had to be Einstein to even try to figure out what all these formulas was. And I'm talking 88, 89 before we even know how to shoot in Israel. Yeah. And I would go to ambushes with it. And I swear to God, I couldn't see more than 20, 30 yards with it. I just couldn't see it. So it would probably better to take that off the gun and throw it at the terrorists from Hezbollah and hope that that scope hits him in the head, uh -huh. it would cause more damage than trying to shoot through that and try to hit him with that thing. At the end of ambushes, we would take it off of our gun and leave it in the field. So they'll use that against us. We have a better chance than, uh, than firing with that stuff. So um, a lot of crazy stories with, with the subpar equipment we used to get back into ambushes in, in the late 80s. That's so crazy. Yeah. I got you're, some crazy you're stories. You're so fascinating to talk to. I love all these stories. Well, I think our life is just a constant, you know, being in the military specifically, it's a lot of shit, but, but there's so many awesome stories, so many great things that happen to you and so many great people you meet. And when I, when I, I actually truly miss it, you know, I'm going to say something that I, I don't say publicly. I miss doing things not for me and my family but for something bigger than me mm -hmm. serving you know i've been to fort bragg i don't know 20 times i've done three gun shoots with them with our mck and they're using our mck as a truck gun in fort bragg the serving something that's bigger than you 
that you can actually lose your life doing. Mm-hmm. There's some, I don't know, I don't know how to say this. I don't want to be stupid. Some, some purity in it, some sort of, some goodness in it. So, you know, it's very important for me that my kids will be in the military. And obviously my wife was in the military. It's very important for me that my kids see policemen and every time they see a police guy or a fireman, they, they'll go out of their way to say, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're brought up in the way to respect the people that are willing to, to give everything for our freedoms that we enjoy here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can take nothing for granted, zero. And, and we need to, to fight for what's ours. So I, I had an honor to serve for 22 years. I had an honor to train the, the American guys. I had an honor to go to Fort Bragg and Camp Lejeune. I've been to a lot of bases here. I'm even trying to build a, a shooting mattress that I'll try to get into the U.S. military that helps them shoot. I've been with the National Guard. I've been with the Army Reserves here. I have this knowledge in my head of I trained 500,000 soldiers how to shoot a gun. So I have this unique knowledge that many others don't have. It's not better knowledge. It's not deeper knowledge. It's a unique knowledge because there's not a lot of people that wrote a shooting doctrine for a fighting army and, and did that for a while. I don't know anything else. You know, if I have to hang up something in my house, my wife has to do it. I have, prob- I have probably third grade common knowledge. You know, my, my, we say in Hebrew, my common knowledge is very weak. I'm just, I just know what I know. I know how to shoot and how to train people how to shoot. So that's the gift God gave me. You know, that's what, I don't know how to run very well. I wasn't very strong. So my, my whole, I used to say in Israel, they make you run 2000 meters and do pull-ups and push-ups for a, your uh, qualification fitness test. And I said, why not to run the whole fucking 2000? Let me run 400. I'll probably have a heart attack by then anyway. <laughs> I'll shoot from 1600 because the boat's faster than the asshole. Anyway, why do I have to run the whole freaking 2000? Yeah. So uh, that was my way to try to teach these uh, fitness freaks. Just give me a gun and move out of my way kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the, is it the Agada? Did I pronounce that? Yeah, sure, sure. The Agada. Agada. The Agada, which means legend in Hebrew, is our new PCC. Now, for us, we've always made conversion kits. So we would make conversion kits for your nine or for your 10 or your 45, whatever, but we never made a rifle. We never made the gun ourselves. We made something that you put your handgun into. So the natural metamorphosis and growth was to go to the next level. And I've always dreamed. Now, by the way, a little story about IWI. When I was going to retire from the IDF, I obviously was, uh, I was going to go work for IWI. Firstly, the CEO is my best friend. Other than that, that's all, all I know. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go be an engineer like my wife. This is, this is what I know. So they offered me a contract and I was supposed to develop the new gun where we're going to be 10 years from now. That's what I was given a contract for. And before I started working for IWI in Israel, uh, one of my generals who was my commander in the infantry, who was in charge of the entire infantry, offered me another job at a higher paying job and more percentages. So I went there and I never ended up working for IWI, even though they back then they were my family. So I had this dream to build a gun. And I was extremely frustrated when I taught soldiers to shoot with the Galil, with the M16, long, short M16, the M4, the Tavor, the, the micro Tavor. Whatever guns I had to train these hundreds of thousands of soldiers, it frustrated me the way the guns built. I was in Beretta's museum. They had this great museum in Italy of guns from 500 years ago, right? These guns that 
people did uh, one of the back-to-back walking 20 steps, turning around, shooting yourself, dual stuff. Crazy history, crazy, amazing history. But when you look at the guns, the last 500 years, nothing's really changed. What's the difference between this AR and this AK and this Tabor? They're all, they all, and, and with, you know, this saved lives. I love guns, right? I'm not saying anything negative about guns. I'm just stating a fact as I see it. They all look like, they all look like a boomstick. It's all stock to barrel. And now when I look at a person's body and you study it, and you study the ergonomics of the shoulders and the and the wrists and the elbows and the torso and the neck and the head and the eyes and where is everything located in your body you can see that every single one of us who holds a long rifle whatever the rifle is it's irrelevant you will see them breaking their wrist and contorting their body to hold their rifle the gun was not made for us. We are adapting ourselves to this gun, and that's the way our dad, our grandfather did, and we just continue that. And it's insane. There is no reason in the look, even when you're when you're talking. Now, obviously, we're in a podcast and nothing visual, but when you hold your hand up in like a boxing stance, right? You'll see that from your elbow through your wrist, through your hand, and through your fingers. It's a straight line. There's one line that you can draw from your elbow all the way up when you're in a fighting stance. And if you look at your index finger in this fighting stance and you pull it up and down, you'll notice that your index finger is going up and down. It's not going back and forth. Now, in order to pull a trigger, by definition, you have to break that wrist, turn that wrist as you can do now as you're talking to me or you're hearing this. You have to turn your wrist. You have to break that wrist in order to bring your index finger to pull from front to rear. That's the only way to do it. Now try, now try to get your face onto the stock. Now you have to get your elbows into a position where your left hand can hold it. We are contorting every point of contact, the shoulder, the face, the right hand, and the left hand are all contorted to adapt ourselves to the way a gun is built. And I said, I'm going to try something. I'm going to go outside the box. There's going to be some hatred. There's going to be some purists. And I said, what the hell are you doing? We even had one guy say, they didn't, how are you going to retrain them? And they're so used to, and all that is logical. But what we're doing is we're going to your natural position. What we are trying to do with this Agadah and the way you will hold it, that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to break any wrists. You don't have to contort yourself to the gun. You're just going to hold it in the most natural position. Wherever your hands fall, that's where the pistol grip's going to be. That's where the forward grip's going to be. That's where the trigger's going to be. That's where the safety is going to be. So if you if you put your hands up in like in a fighting motion, why do they do that? Because it's a very natural motion to do, to put your hands up. Even if you've never fought in your life, never did Krav Maga in your life, never been in a fight in your life, never. And you have to just protect yourself. Your nature is to put your hands up in front of your head with your weak hand forward and your back hand closer to your body in a fist. That's the way you are. It's natural. It's, a, it's an instinct. And that's exactly where we put the grips. That's exactly where the pistol grip is. So instead of the pistol grip being below the, the, the lower and the rear of the lower receiver, it's off to the right and up. Your, your forward grip is not underneath the barrel. It's way off to the left and forward. And the trigger pull is a downward trigger pull and not a 
front to rear trigger pull. Um, so everything about the Agadah was built so it can fit your body, which will create speed, which would create accuracy, which would create less struggle. It'll be a more natural hold. It'll be a more comfortable hold, which will create less. When you hold a gun unnaturally, you'll see people, and I see it all the time, they shake, their gun's shaking because they're not, they're, their muscles are being used instead of their bones being used. They're not, they're not doing it correctly. Even the way people put their head on a stock is amazing to me. How many people fold their head to the right? How many people keep the stock too low in their shoulder? I cannot tell you how many videos I've seen of people shooting. It's just wrong, just, just wrong. And you want to wake up and, and hey guys, you know, I, we give tips all the time. We built this gun that will make it very easy to shoot. Now that makes total sense. Cause I watched that video, you know, when you were first introducing it and everything that you said made sense. And it's weird how the rifle ergonomics haven't changed in like 500 years. And that this is kind of just like what we accept, like, oh, okay. You know, without really thinking about, I guess the ergonomics of our body. I don't know. It's, I would definitely be interested to shoot one to see exactly. I feel like kind of like how you were saying about the conversion kits. It's like, unless you hold one, you can't fully understand, like, you know, from a distance, it just looks like some weird thing that you put your gun in. 100%. I think the, the, there, what I love about this country is it's okay to hate. (laughs) It's okay not to agree, but I always say, try it first. You know, after you tried it and you didn't like it, screw it. How did the MCK go viral? The only way, the Roni didn't go viral, the Micro-Roni didn't go viral. Why did the MCK go viral? Other than the fact that it's made in America, you know, and we, we improved a lot of stuff. But the reason it went viral is because people enjoyed shooting it so much. And, and that love, you know, in, in selling in business, you'll hear two terms, a push and a pull. A push is when you go to a distributor like Sports Out and you say to them, I'll give you a spiff if you sell my product. You're pushing it on to the end user. A pull is when you, you go to the end user through viral content, he goes into his dealer and his mom's and pop's pizzeria, brick and mortars. Hey, I saw this conversion kit on, on Facebook or something. Do you have it? He says, I don't even know what you're talking about. He calls Sports South and then Sports South calls me and that's the way we did this. So we use the pulling effect, right? We pull it off the shelves. That's exactly what can happen with the Agadah. The Agadah people will shoot in the beginning. They're going to be, everyone's going to look at them at the range. What the hell is that? No one's seen anything like that in 500 years. And then they're going to try it. And then they're going to see, well, this is a lot easier for me to shoot. This is a lot more natural for me to shoot. This is a lot more comfortable for me to shoot. Uh, let, let, me, let me get serious. And now, and we're pricing the, the PCC at, at under $900, which is probably on the lower spectrum of the PCCs. It takes a Glock magazine as well. We're going to provide our own magazines, but it takes a Glock magazine as well. And the price point with the comfortability, I think we're looking, you know, we hope uh, we'll hit a home run. And to be honest, there's going to be haters. There's going to be people who are saying, what are you talking about? One cannot accept something that's very different than he's used to. Mm-hmm. If, even the way we check a gun, I'm going to tell a story here. It's a, it's a very cool story for people that are gun guys. The way a weapon was checked in Israel meaning after when you're checking it, making sure there's no round inside, that it's not loaded. And we can discuss at another time of going with a magazine and not going with a magazine and bullet in the chamber, not, it's a whole nother conversation. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what Israel does in that world as well. But the way we would check the Galil, 
the way we would check the M4, the M16s, was that we would pull the receiver, the cocking hand. I'm sorry about my terminology in English. It's terrible. But we would cock the gun twice. We would let it go. We would open up a safety and we would pull the trigger. Then we would have to recock it to close the safety. That's how we checked an M4 or a Galil. The safety is a little bit different than Galil, but you had to open up the safety to cock the weapon in a Galil. This was outstandingly stupid. And this is what was done for 40 years in Israel, 40. And some people in America still do similar. No one really looked at it. And I was put in charge of, of shooting in 93. And I started to see that a lot of our misfires are happening when uh, the, what do you guys call it? Dis accidental discharge. The accidental discharge were happening when? When we were checking the gun to see if it was loaded or not. And then you study this. They would pull the cocking mechanism, open up the safety and pull the trigger. Coincidentally, that's how you shoot a bullet. You have to cock it, open up the safety and pull the trigger. So the exact same actions that you do to shoot a gun are used to check the gun in the Israeli army back then. What a surprise that we had so many accidental discharges because our guys are a lot less disciplined than the American people. And I can tell stories about that. And we would forget our magazine inside. And we would, every time you would go into a base, outside of a base, get on a bus, get off a bus, you would have to check your weapon. It was law in Israel. So the guy wanted to be cool in front of the guy who was doing gate duty, guard duty. He wouldn't see the idiot that the magazine is stolen, the frigging gun. And he would cock it twice, open up the safety and, and do it. And he would do this under a second. And by the time he realized that he forgot the frigging magazine in, the bullet was already out. I hated his system. I hated it with a passion. But at that time, I was not in charge of the safety of Israel. Of the military i was just in charge of the shooting doctrine and training and what guns were using and optics and all that i wasn't in charge of the technical side of the gun it's a different division in the idea and i used to believe that what we should do is cock the gun three times that's it no opening up a safety no pulling a trigger the only time you ever open up a safety or pull a trigger is when you want to shoot the freaking gun never when you're checking it this was my belief for years. I would even tell people it's my belief, but it wasn't my call. So I could not change doctrine in that area because that wasn't my responsibility at that time. And then an unfortunate incident happened in Israel and we're in the territories and we have something called normal may have statement. So it means you, you work with a magazine in, in, the, in the gun and someone cleaned their weapon. And after you clean your weapon, you also check it. Mm -hmm. So he, he put his gun magazine in without realizing it cocked the gun, shot the round, you know, soldiers are soldiers, and it hit his, and it hit his friend in the back. Uh. Did not kill him, but hit him in the back. And they had, when this happens, a brigadier general who's in charge of the entire infantry, same job, by the way, I ended up working with, but not the same guy, calls me in, and I told him what I think. He says, Mikey, that's genius. If you cock three times, there's no chance of someone by accident doing an accidental mischarge and killing somebody. Mm -hmm. Maximum, you'll see two rounds flying through the air because I cocked the gun three times and the, the bullets went out. And now I say, oh, oh, I screwed up. I forgot my magazine in. I can take out my, my magazine and clear it. And we started to teach that in the infantry. And then the head of safety, who's in charge of this, 
heard that, got pissed off as shit. He said, what are you guys changing that doctor? And I know Mikey talks about that. I'm not, I don't agree with that. And he basically turned it back. A week later, a week later, we're in Lebanon, a unit in from the tanks. Same exact scenario as the guys that were in the territories. Cleans his gun, puts a magazine in, cocks it. This time, accidentally mischarges, but kills his friend. Uh, now there's a dead soldier because they didn't listen to me, right? Now this is driving me nuts so because my entire life is trying to save people, right? This is why I was born in this world, right? That's why I think God put me here. And I was, I was losing it, right? And then he's in trouble, this guy, because now it's up at the, it goes to the end of the chief of staff, right? The chief of staff now has to talk about a soldier dying. This is studied and learned from and what happened. And he came to my base and he said, you know what? Let me see your idea again. And I showed him my, the idea of, I can even take the extractor pin out. Nothing can happen. There's no way of a, a misfire, no way of a bullet getting stuck in the chamber. Shells get stuck, but not bullets. And another, another lecture. And then they changed the system of how to check a gun. Now all guns, Tavors or M4s or whatever you have, Galil's, you have to cock the gun three times and that's it. You do not open up a safety. You do not pull the trigger. We cut down the accidental discharges by 95% and decrease the people being hit accidentally by, a, by accidental discharge to by 100%. We went from the number that was there that I'm embarrassed to say to zero. And, um, and that's just by thinking outside the box. So there were some purists who are so used to doing that that they were upset at the three pulling back option, the way the IDF does now. And they, couldn't, they didn't believe in it. It's the same way it will be with the Agadah. People say, no, 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 you can't do that. There's no way that these guys were all wrong for 500 years. You can't improve on that. You can't think outside. Who the hell do you think you are, you frigging Israeli-American idiot? You know? And I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody else. God forbid. Someone had to think outside the box in this world. And we said, why not us? And the future will teach us if we were right or wrong. I truly believe five years from now, every major gun company in America will have grips that are very, very similar to the grips that we're making hmm. under the patents that we did. But I, there is no question in my mind that there's going to be some serious people that are going to like this very much. Um, I'm not saying it's fit for military. I'm not saying it's fit to go to war with. We're talking PCCs here. We're talking nine millimeters. We're not talking crazy sniper shit. But you'll see that the comfortability is going to be a, a big deal. And we have to put our, you know, uh, our reputation behind this, right? It's got to do what it's got to do. We're not going to release it until it does what it's supposed to do. But uh, we're still very optimistic that pre-shot show, the first 1,000 will go out and we're going to kill ourselves for that to happen. Wow. Okay. So that's when you're expecting it to hopefully be released. Yes, ma'am. Awesome. For any listeners who want to follow uh, CAA USA, where can they find you guys on the internet? Um, caagearup.com. So it's G-E-A-R-U-P. So it's caagearup.com. Okay. Awesome. And then you guys have links to social media, YouTube, and all that good stuff. Yes. Yes, man. You know, social media became a, without social media, I wouldn't be talking to you. Uh, that changed our life. You know, as of now though, to be honest, it's a lot less important. If all of our social media pages went down, to be honest, right now, it's not, it wouldn't kill me. I wouldn't want it to happen. But now it's, it, firstly, Facebook now doesn't like gun guys. Yeah, YouTube, YouTube doesn't like gun guys. Instagram doesn't like gun guys. 
you know, I can't even tell you how many times they, I see others and ours that posts get taken down for no reason. Um, we're not in a popular social media. People don't like us. You know, the, the, the high tech guys, you know, the big tech guys, they don't, they're not big fans of us. Yeah. So um, our Facebook page is almost, you know, 400,000 followers, 450,000 followers. And it's like dead. No one even gets to see it. You know, we're always getting warnings all the time and, and we're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. They just, no. they just don't want our voice to be heard. Yeah. So um, that's why people like you are so important. You know, people that are, are talking to the, the second amendment lovers, the people that, you know, believe in our freedoms, believe in our constitution, believe in the right to, to protect your family. So, you know, that's why the fight needs to be fought, you know? Absolutely. I know. I totally agree. All right. Mikey, thank you so much for joining me today. You're definitely a fascinating person to talk to. The show actually ran pretty a little over, but I just, everything that you had to say, it was like amazing. You definitely have stories. I appreciate that very much. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Can you just remind listeners once again where they can find CAA USA? Sure. It's CAAgearup.com. So we're, we're out there somewhere. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. I hope everything works out with the house and you get in faster than slower and it'll work out. And, and then a year from now, it'll just be a, a memory. Yeah, maybe I'll see you at Shotgun. We'll just laugh about it, right? We'll be like, remember when our houses were just, you know, total chaos and now we're like living like in brand new houses. Did you hear that Ziggler pulled out, right? Two days ago? Oh, I know. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. crazy. Yeah. I don't know. It'll be interesting if the SHOT Show occurs. And I also think that even if it does, I don't know if a lot of people are going to be going. I know. I know. We we have to because of the Agadah. And we also have to because we're coming out with a new optic that, zeros itself i tried one of the one of the things that we had a problem with was trying to zero people that the zeroing is becoming such a difficult thing for people time ammo frustration so we came out with some technology that the optic itself you're gonna shoot go to the target with your phone your phone is going to take a picture of your where you're hitting and where you are aiming it will then talk to the site itself which has a little engine it will move the reticle, and then the next time you shoot, you hit where you're, you're hitting, where you're aiming, so you don't have to actually manually zero. So wow. it's a cool thing that we're coming out with. We're calling it the Zeus, zero under eight seconds. Dang. Okay, this is definitely something that I need, especially because with ammo, like, I mean, ammo right now is expensive, hands down, but like, Great. you know, especially with like some of the ammo that you're shooting, you're like, I mean, it could be like $3, $5 a round, and you're like, well, this sucks. Yep. By the time you zeroed in, you're like, cool. You know, thirty dollars. I gotta go home. Now I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, yep. Interesting. So you're also coming out with that during Shot Show. Yeah. No, I wish it'll probably be closer to March. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining me today, and I'll definitely, hopefully, I'll meet you in person sometime soon, even if Shot Show gets canceled. You know, at some event nearby. For sure, for sure. Eva. I appreciate very much being on. And keep up the great work, and don't ever stop. Thank you. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.